Well, uh, this second lesson on fasting and prayer, uh, I want to bring to your attention, and a couple other extra notes here, put everything in place. And last week I told you that there were some things that I would hope to achieve, that is objectives, not some things, some objectives to achieve, and five words. One was explain, and explain really the place and benefit of fasting and prayer in both testaments and even in this present age. The next was provide, and hopefully provide a complement to what we already studied in 1 Peter 4, 7, uh, which was a call to prayer in view of the last times, and then inspire, uh, that is, introduce to you in some level, um, I hope, fasting and prayer in your life, and if it's already a part of it, um, to continue it, and also for those that it was a part, but now it's not maybe reinvigorated. It was interesting because a number of people that after uh, the lesson on Sunday approached me, either by way of a text or or an email, or just face-to-face, and said that it was beneficial for them to hear these things. And as a matter of fact, some of them at one point in time, on a regular basis, they would be involved in fasting and prayer, but maybe they stopped it because maybe the environment from which they came, uh, there was a great deal of pressure to be involved in it. And it seems as if you were a person that fasted and prayed that meant that you were truly spiritual. And so they had this sense of obligation when it came to fasting and prayer, or maybe the things that they had learned to fast and pray concerning uh, weren't always biblical, weren't always with the right motives. So to them, it was refreshing to hear this idea of fasting and prayer and answering this question, um, is it for today? And I've already stated that I believe that it is. And then I'm hoping to the fourth word was provide, uh, provide some guidelines for incorporating the discipline in your life. And most likely that'll come out in the Q&A time. I, I was going to put them in the notes and sort of go through them uh, one by one, but I thought, no, most likely once we have the Q&A time, it'll come out then. So I just want to, once I say a few more words here to introduce it, uh, pick up where we were last week in the life of Jesus, and then go to Matthew 6, and then go to Matthew 9, and show what I believe uh, is what the scripture is teaching concerning it. And then also, the last word was just help. Just you, help you understand Matthew 6, 16 through 18, and also Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and put things in context when it comes to fasting and prayer. There are a number of people that we refer to. Um, John Piper talks about fasting being a feasting because he sees it as Yes, I am denying myself in one way, but I'm striving to feast more on the Lord. And then uh, there is someone that I want to quote from. His name is Daniel Hyde, and he refers to the transcultural phenomenon of fasting today. And he sees it three ways, and I think we would agree with all of them. As a matter of fact, you'd have to because it's just evident. Um, One is people fast for political reasons. You've heard of someone being on a hunger strike and they're trying to make a statement. They're saying, I will not eat again until uh, this situation changes, whatever it may be. Perhaps they think there is an injustice in their uh, particular context and so they will go on a hunger strike to prove a point. And some will even go to some extremes on a hunger strike. They may even be outside and I've seen people that will chain themselves to the poles of you know, the um, Chamber of Commerce or something like that and say, I won't eat again until something has changed or my voice is heard and whatever context they think is going to be effective. Then there is a religious obligation, and I do make sure we hear that word because we're talking about fasting and prayer as a part of an expression of our religion, of our faith, but not obligation. But there's some where there is a religious obligation because all adult Muslims are required to fast from dawn to dusk during the month of Ramadan. And you, um, if you have maybe friends, um, it could even be relatives or others that you have seen go through this practice during the month of Ramadan, their holy month, 
they're going to be involved in fasting and praying. I still remember um, many years ago, um, Akeem Olajuwon, his name almost escaped me, great uh, for the Houston Rockets, but he was a practicing Muslim. And what was interesting, there were times when he would be fasting uh, during that time, and he would still be playing basketball. But that was his absolute commitment to his obligation. And again, I, I emphasize obligation. And then, of course, there's Christian fasting, whereas we humble our bodies and our soul before God, as Hyde says, as an aid to draw near to God in prayer. And I believe that prayer um, in, without fasting or fasting without prayer is not what's intended in Scripture. Because then we sort of just become a political approach to it, if you will. Those that are fasting, they are not necessarily praying. They're just making a statement on a hunger strike. That's not what we're doing. We're not making a hunger strike before the Lord. And let me say something else that I'll probably say a couple of other times, and it may come up again even in our Q&A, that um, one may fast and it not simply be food. And as a matter of fact, let me give this guideline already. If you're involved in fasting and praying, but you're binging on television, this is not what God intended. To say, well, I'm going to give up my meals, but I'm going to watch every episode of whatever it may be. Our college football season has started. I'm fasting and praying, but now you've watched, you know, three games back to back to back. That is not what God intended. Is that clear? So uh, we need to make sure that that's in order because at times a person may say, well, I'm fasting. Yes, but you've not involved yourself in six hours of television. What do you think is in your mind right now? I mean, if you're fasting, it's saying, let me set aside this time and try to focus Uh, my attentions and affections. And of course, if we're fasting, but we're doing it with ill motives, as the Pharisees did, to be seen and recognized by others as someone that is spiritual, if we do it out of pride to prove something to someone else, to say that we can do it, to say that I can be involved in self-denial just as much as you can, then the person won't benefit spiritually from the discipline, the godly discipline of fasting and prayer. Actually, I would say that it's the opposite. If one takes that approach to it, the result is going to be spiritual digression because um, you are doing with ill motives. It's out of pride. There is no spiritual benefit to you. And a person may then, with that attitude, develop a false sense of spirituality. And I can say this as well. Fasting and prayer should be, and I would say must be, an act of worship as you're engaged with the Lord, an act of worship. Um, Let that statement lead to this. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, question 108 divides the elements of worship into two categories. So two categories in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, First category is this, what is called the ordinary elements of worship. What are the ordinary elements of worship? Number one, praying. Two, reading. And then that is reading the word. Number three, preaching the word of God. And then next is singing songs. And then the last would be being involved in communion. So here are the ordinary elements of worship. We pray, we read and preach the word of God. We sing songs to the Lord. And then we're involved in communion. And then there's a second category in the Westminster Confession of Faith that says this. The second category is the occasional elements of worship, such as religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgiving. But notice they included a part of worship to be solemn fastings. And of course, they would attach the word to fasting solemn, that it's something that's sincere, that it's something that's generated from the heart. And with that, it's done with pure motives. So should we be involved in fasting and prayer? I believe that we should. Uh, Does the scripture obligate us to do it? I don't believe that it does. Um, Is it an element of Christian discipline? Yes, it is. Are there benefits from it? I believe most definitely that that they are. Um, Elements that you can see through scripture 
but I can also speak experientially, not from my own experience, but from the experience of many, many, many other voices throughout history that would say there's a benefit when one humbles himself and shows a degree of self-control and even denial in pursuing the Lord in this particular way, through fasting and prayer. Now, we already looked at even the scope of it in Scripture. We saw that there are individual times of of fasting. Uh, Hannah, when she desired a son in 1 Samuel 1, uh, fasting and prayer. Moses, Nehemiah, Daniel, Elijah, Esther. And and even on a national basis, of course, uh, the most important day would be the Day of Atonement, as the people of God would gather. There are aspects of this fasting, which was grief or repentance and humbling oneself before the Lord. All of that was fasting and prayer, and particularly when there was appeal for help. God, we are in a situation where we're overwhelmed. We need you to help us in this situation. Now, we read from, and if you can briefly uh, go back with me to Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58, and we paid attention to this fast that Israel was involved in, but yet it was a fast that God rejected because they had done it with ill motives. They did it with the heart that was not right. They did it with a sense of pride. And they did it in a way, not as something that was worshipful, not in a spirit of repentance, but they did it uh, by way of a formula. They thought, if we would simply fast, then God is obligated to respond to us. Now God, move. And God indicts them, as we saw last week in Isaiah 58, when God says, verse 3, why have you fasted and you do not see? So this is the question that they have, or why have we fasted and you do not see? And why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast and your desire, and you drive hard all your workers. So God is indicting them right away. You're fasting and you're saying that it's something that's spiritual, but you're violating it by the way that you're treating others that are under, supposedly under your care. And he says, you are showing wickedness. Verse 4, notice some element of fasting when it's done properly. In the second part of verse 4, it says, you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. So uh, there's an implication in that thought in verse 4, that when done, when done properly, there's a sense in which the voice is heard on high. What does that mean, voice heard on high? Because as I said last week, it is not to say, obviously, that if one doesn't fast, because actually if we were to take a survey of Christians across the world, uh, and I would say probably more so in, in Western Christianity, that most are not involved in fasting and prayer. But at the same time, most of those people in Western Christianity are praying. So is their voice heard on high? Of course it is, because of what? The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The promise that comes from Hebrews chapter 4, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of what? What does it say? In time of need. So there's this emphasis that's here, and and I think the implication behind the thought is that when one does properly humble themselves, it is something that stirs the heart heart of God. Because we see throughout Scripture when Israel would humble themselves, what what did God do? He was stirred inside. Even at times it says all of his compassions are stirred up inside of him. You think about someone like Hezekiah. Remember when Hezekiah, it was noted that he was going to die, and Hezekiah did what he sought the Lord, and he sought it even with tears and with great weeping. And it's interesting that when God responds to Hezekiah, he says, I have heard your prayer, and I've seen your tears. Wait a minute, why isn't it good enough just to hear his prayer? Why did God add that I've seen your tears? Because he's saying, Hezekiah, I see that you're brokenhearted over this. I see that you're sincere. I see that your motives are right. I see that your heart is right. And I'm going to be gracious towards you. And what happens? Now he gives him the extra 15 years of life. Whereas before he was told, put your house in order, you're about to die. So even in that, there are implications in the language of God there that he's saying he looks at us, if you will, and this person is in earnest. They are sincere, and this somehow stirs the heart of our Father. And so he says this is not a true fast 
a true fast would be you essentially through the rest of this passage in verse 12 would be to show justice to those around you. Fast, essentially what he's saying is fast from iniquity, fast from wrongdoing, fast from injustice. You're going around and you're fasted from food and, and you put on sackcloth and ashes and your head is bowed down, but I'm paying no attention to it at all. Turn with me to uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 14. Jeremiah 14 and then verse 11. 14, 11. And we know Jeremiah um, called a weeping prophet a very difficult ministry. A difficult ministry, he would preach to the people of Judah and say that they have been indicted and judgment is ultimately coming. They will be taken away. And what does he communicate to the people of God? God says to Jeremiah, verse 11, So the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. And notice what he says in verse 12, When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Well, we know exactly what happened. They were conquered and they were exiled. And here, again, because these people are not fasting from the things what they should, which is their wickedness, their vileness, their ingratitude towards me, this great covenant God, when they do fast, I won't hear them. And he says, don't even pray for them because it is set in order that they will be judged. But ultimately with God, even judgment is a part of a gracious plan because in that judgment, he brings about repentance at least for some when they respond to it properly. Now, we know that when we come to the New Testament that the Pharisees were um, very disciplined in this area, that they would fast twice a week. And they want it to be noted for their fasting. We saw that Israel would fast for the Day of Atonement. We saw the Pharisees fast. We saw that Anna fasted. We saw that Cornelius would fast. Paul involved in fasting as well. We noted some people throughout history. There is Luther and there's Calvin and there's Edwards, men that were involved in fasting. Um, Thomas Boston involved in fasting. But let me also bring someone else to your attention where we can say, what are some other thoughts, some other considerations from men throughout history? Uh, Abraham Kuyper, theologian of time past, uh, I think Kuyper died in uh, 1920, and he said that today there is still some found among the godly who fast, but very few. The practice has gradually died out. We no longer have congregational fasting. We have become estranged from fasting, and we do not count it among the means of edification. So he obviously writes from a historical standpoint and saying at one point in time, this was the norm, even in the church, at least in his environment, that even a congregation, they were known to say, we should fast for this situation that we're faced in our community. But it says it's died out. Implication, it was very much a part of the life, at least in his environment, the church. And listen to what Edwards says, that is Jonathan Edwards from his works. He says, although ministers recommend and much insist on the duty of secret prayer in their preaching, so little is said about secret fasting. And so what is Edwards saying? Yes, and it is right. He's not saying that it's incorrect. Ministers preach about how we should be involved in secret prayer, how that should be a part of our life, and how it should be something that infuses even our preaching. But what about fasting? Why is this not heard? Let me give you a couple of other thoughts um, before we move on. Andrew Murray, he said this, and um, Andrew Murray, South African pastor, um, missionary, we call him a missionary statesman, we might say, often look to him as a, a very spiritual man, um, early 1800s to, yeah, almost, um, well, almost 100 years, like 1828 to 1916, Andrew Murray. He says this, prayer needs fasting for its full growth. Prayer is the one hand with which we grasp the invisible, 
Fasting is, the other hand, the one which we let go of the visible. And what he's saying is that in prayer, we're, we're calling out to the living God whom we don't see, but yet we know he is there and he hears us because of Christ. And he says the complement to it is fasting, where we let go of these things that are visible, that it might stimulate us at times more in our fasting. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, fasting, if we conceive of it, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some spiritual purpose. So it is, I do believe that a person may say, I'm going to fast from this area of my life. And I'm going to use the time that perhaps would normally be used there. And I'm going to focus more on the, the word of God, praying for people, for other needs. And that's why I was having a bit of fun with it. But I'm quite serious about one can't be involved in fasting and prayer and watching, a, you know, a double header, I don't think. Or a triple header or whatever it may be. Or making sure you catch the last episode, the finale of your favorite series. You're saying, I'm setting aside some time to be in earnest and serious about these matters. And then David Smith said this. He wrote a book, and it's entitled Fasting, a Neglected Discipline. He wrote this and said, fasting is only one discipline. Nevertheless, it is self-denial. This does not mean that to fast is to embrace legalism. It is gospel liberty which encourages us to deny ourselves, and, and he brings balance to it. So there's a liberty when it comes to fasting. One may do it or they may not. It's a gospel liberty. But it is in that gospel liberty we are denying ourselves because we desire something else. We desire something else. It's a statement that says that I'm quite serious about this thing that's in front of me. Uh, let's move on. Jesus Christ, his practice, what was it? Well, we see, as we noted before, there's only one occasion that we're aware of that's documented of him fasting and praying, Matthew 4, 1 through 4. And then his teaching on it is where we pick up now in Matthew 6, 6 to 18. And we saw three divisions in this passage. And those three divisions are highlighting really the, the marks of Jewish piety. And what are those three divisions? Verses 1 to 4, giving to the poor. And then verses 5 to 18, prayer itself. And then 19 to 24 is fasting. But let's um, pay attention to what is happening here. So if we look at Matthew 6, and let's walk through it, and then we're going to look at chapter 9, 14 to 17. Skipping by it here. What do we want to notice? And let me just read it. Verses particularly 16 through 18. And um, he says, verse 16, he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And of course, he goes on to talk about um, where we are to store up our treasures, if you will, so what, how do we understand what's communicated here about fasting? Well, a couple of headings I want to give you. The first is this, the resistance to hypocrisy and human approval. That's the first heading we want to pay attention to, the resistance to hypocrisy and human approval. I think all of us in some measure, uh, if we're to be honest, there's a sense in which all of us, um, we strive for at times human approval. We want others to accept us, to like us, to even recognize who we are. We want others to recognize our character and our growth. And, 
Is there something wrong with that necessarily? Well, it might be. Um, I think we should. Uh, scripture is clear. We do set an example for others to follow. Even Paul to Timothy says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but ultimately set an example for those around you. But we don't strive for their human approval. And with the Pharisees, this was the, the issue. And what is interesting here, the scripture is saying that with them, they are hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? An interesting word, hypocrite, originally was a word that was used for Greek actors when they would uh, put on different masks to disguise themselves. And he's saying with them, they're putting on this mask of spirituality, but in their hearts, they really are not. They're not who they propose to be. And so for us, we need to be careful that we are not living in hypocrisy. That is, that we do it only to gain the approval of men. That was like them. That's how they behave. And then something else that's important, if you will, is the priority of divine approval. The priority of divine approval. Um, and actually, I got my... I need to wait. That's in chapter 9. So... Look with me at verse 17 of chapter 6. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So what does he say here? There's a sense in which we, in our display, he's saying to the disciples, I think he's right away saying to the disciples, this is how they behave now to his disciples who are there. Clean yourself up. Uh, Brighten yourself up. Don't go around with this gloomy face And some of them, there is some idea that perhaps some of them may have put on even some ashes to make sure that people thought and knew that they were fasting. Don't be that way. It's interesting that um, J.C. Rouse speaks to this for a moment, and he says this. He says, let us learn from our Lord's instruction about fasting, the great importance of cheerfulness in our religion. Those words, anoint your head and wash your face, are full of deep meaning. They should teach us to aim at letting men see that we find Christianity makes us happy. And what he's saying here, don't be melancholy about it if you decide that you're going to be involved in this process of fasting and prayer. Be unlike the Pharisees is what he's communicating. There should be a cheerfulness about yourself because you are right now, at least hopefully, you're seeking the Lord and answers from him. So there's a sense which we strive for divine approval. Um, and there is even some records that indicate, it says that the rabbis forbade washing on the day of atonement and other fasts perhaps as well. And it says, unless one is soiled with mud or excrement. That is, that's the only reason that you could wash your face. That's a good reason, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Any other occasion, keep Stay the way that you are. Look like you've done something really, really hard. Present yourself in this religious sense of agony. And no, it's not that at all. Jesus Christ says the opposite. This should be something that's cheerful for you because hopefully you're drawing closer to the Lord. So wash your face. Don't, let, don't parade it around to everyone. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that a little bit more, it was a couple of years ago. I was mentioning this actually um, to a group of people And some people took issue with it. They said, you're not supposed to tell anyone that you're fasting and praying. It says it there in Matthew. And I thought I'd never heard uh, that response before. I thought it was pretty evident that it's a certain context for it. So I had to walk through the teaching with actually some other leaders and others. And we put things in context. So what he's saying, the the Pharisees are making this declaration. They're declaring So that's why he says to them, once they've made their declaration, that's why they have their reward in full, because they've sought the approval of humans, and now they've gained their approval of humans, but they have no approval from me. So don't parade it. He isn't saying that it's an absolute, never tell a person that you're fasting and praying. He said, don't be like the Pharisees and parade it about. And this is the idea of understanding secrecy and reward. Um, Notice, if you will, and we'd have to really even go back to um, chapter 6 earlier. 
um, actually the end of chapter 5. In chapter 5, notice what's communicated there. In verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then again, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is imperfect. And again, in verse 1, chapter 6, your Father who is in heaven. Then notice what he says in beginning in verse 4. Um, verse 2, um, the hypocrites, what do they do? Um, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they will be honored by men. See, there's that human approval. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in what? What does he say? In full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So again, he's talking about giving. When you give, make sure that you give with right motives. And what does it mean that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing? I think it's just a way to communicate that you do it with sincerity and you do it with purity. That you do, don't do it so that others could see, about, see that you are making this statement so that you can receive accolades of men. And then he says, verse 4, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what you've done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward, what? Again, in full. And so we have this picture that they make these lofty prayers in the synagogues and they would be literally on corners praying out and people would pass by and they would see and they would laud them. He says, but in contrast, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So now again, secret, secret, secret comes up. Now, so if we look at verse six, uh, the question might be, if we take that Jesus Christ is saying, say, for instance, even with fasting, you're to never tell anyone because look at the language says secret, secret, secret throughout. Well, one would also have to conclude that you should never tell anyone whatsoever that you've given to someone that's poor. You should never say, here's a ministry that I've helped out. That should never happen if we're going to take this as an absolute. Christ is talking about the heart. And then as well, when it comes to prayer, then does he mean in the literal sense, go to your inner room? Often we use the language of going to one's closet. Is that what he's saying? That we should only pray, pray and we must go to our inner room and literally we have to close the door. Once we close the door, then we pray and God who sees us in the inner room of our home, then he's going to hear our heart, then he's going to reward us. No, the inner room, closing the door, again, it's talking about motives here. Go to that place in your heart if you will. Go to that place in your mind. Go to this place of, that represents the purity of your intentions and you pray to the Lord. That may be that you do it publicly, but you do it as a people gather together unto the Lord. This is what he's communicating. This is the secret place that he's talking about. He's not saying that it always has to be away from uh, the public arena, but it has to be away from the intention that you want people in public to notice you and to lodge you is what he's communicating. So he says, then you will have your reward. And of course, he tells them what? When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do for their purpose that they will be heard for their many words. The Pharisees thought, I'll be recognized because look at me, I'm doing it in the synagogue, I'm doing it in public. And with the Gentiles, they say, look at me, uh, I've said it again and again and again. It's a demonstration that I'm in earnest. My God, whatever that deity may be, will hear me. You remember what happened with Elijah and Mount Carmel. How did it escalate there? What did the false prophets of Baal begin to do? What was their posture? What did they do when it came to their prayers? Someone tell me. They cut themselves and what else did they do? They began to chant more and more and more. And what did, and in one sense, that was their repetition. Let's stir up our God. And what did Elijah do? He essentially criticized them. And with that sarcastic tone, he says, what should you do? Oh, just be louder. 
louder. Maybe he's on a stroll. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you can wake him up. Maybe you can divert him, and then he'll come and intervene for you. The Gentiles are like that, but not you. No, not at all. And there have been times one has to uh, be careful of their motives, and I've been in some environments where almost like it becomes a a praying contest. No, I'm quite serious about it. Um, It's sad, but all of a sudden I've heard, and at times these have been ministers, and one prays a certain prayer, and another prays another prayer, and it's like he's, it seems like he's trying to outdo his prayer. And so now he's quoting more scripture, and he's pulling out words that sound a bit more eloquent, and it's more poetic, and it's more poetic, and now it's more and more and more of this, look at my words. Whereas if, it just, if we just had a little child that came and says, Lord, help us today, amen. That would have been wonderful, Right? So be careful that we don't become like Gentiles for, feet, for thought that somehow God is going to hear us now. Now, does that mean there, there are prayers, and I'm sure you've read, say, for instance, if one goes and reads um, from um, Puritan prayers, or say, for instance, why is it escaping me right now, the book, Brad Clausen, you know what I'm talking about? The Valley of Vision. See, I knew he would. <laughs> the Valley of Vision. Eloquent prayers, rich prayers that say this man is communing with God. Words that create word pictures and help you see what his heart is. Nothing's wrong with that. But it's not my eloquence has made it to heaven. My vocabulary has opened the doors of heaven. No, Jesus Christ opened the doors of heaven through his blood and through his resurrection. And some people are built a certain way, and they express themselves more poetically than others. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. And others are just, it's simple, it's to the point. It is that, God help me today, give me grace, I thank you. So he says, don't be like them. So one can conclude, if we say secret, um, he's talking about the heart issue. The inner room is pure motives that I'm doing this unto the Lord. And then what we've already noticed about fasting and prayer. Now, do this with me. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And I think I'm on time to finish up and we can have some questions. Matthew 9. So here... Then the disciples of John came to him, that is to Jesus, saying, "Um, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Surely, Jesus, you know of fasting. And Jesus says to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. They will fast. Um, It's pretty evident, I think, what's being communicated here. So let's start here. We have a condition. What's the condition about fasting for the disciples? Well, the expression, the wedding guests, uh, literally means the sons of of the bridal hall. What is it referring to? That Jesus Christ is that bridegroom. Go with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 2. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And who is that son? Then 25. Notice the language that's there. 25, skip right over it, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And then also in verses 5 and 6, same chapter. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all go out drowsy. They all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And there will be a day when there is going to be a shout, and some 
are going to be unlike um, those wise, and they're going to be left behind. That's kind of funny uh, story, just something that just happened in our family. Um, that uh, Saturday morning, I was gone somewhere, and, um, and then Joanna was somewhere else. And my son said he woke up, and he didn't see anyone of us there. And we normally tell them that we're going to be somewhere. So we had this moment thinking, okay, what just happened here? Did I get left behind? <laughs> I said, good for you. It should make you think about things. <laughs> That's right. Don't be left behind. <laughs> that would be a weird feeling, wouldn't it? It's like, did dad and mom normally tell us, and like both of them are gone, and I'm sure they know the Lord, right? <laughs> I love the look on his face, too, when he told us the story. It just hit me when I was thinking about that. But the bridegroom is going to call, right? And we're going to meet the bridegroom. But some are not going to be ready. Some are going to be drowsy. Then it's going to be too late. He's the bridegroom. And then verse 10 as well. Verse 10, it communicates it. He says, and while they were going away to make their purchase, the bridegroom came. Well, you should have done that earlier. You should have had the lamps prepared earlier. And those who were ready went in with them to the wedding feast, and the door was what? Wow, that just ponder that for a second. And once that door is shut, there is no opening. You heard a couple of weeks ago, Greg and... Um, taught from Genesis. And, um, but we know one of the episodes in Genesis was the ark. And when that door was shut, there was no opening. And what had happened beforehand? Heed the word of God. Heed the word of God. Whatever way Noah was preaching, he was a preacher of righteousness, so we can say as an umbrella statement, he was preaching the righteousness of God and a response to this righteous God Heat it, heat it, heat it, heat it, and the door was shut. I mean, I just can't, you know, imagine that you've heard it and you realize that you've heard it all these years, years and years and years. The door is shut and the rains come and you're thinking, oh my. And lives are swept away. But there's going to come, there will be a point when the bridegroom will come and this door is shut. Look with me to Isaiah. I want to make a connection for you. So the bridegroom, he says, they should not be mourning or they shouldn't be fasting while the bridegroom is here, but a time will come. I am that bridegroom. And notice Isaiah 62. The image that Jesus Christ is, in fact, his bridegroom. Isaiah 62, 5, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So here, God is now depicted as that bridegroom. And so what we should do right now is pause for a second and make sure that we don't miss the statement of Jesus Christ's deity. Here is God is that bridegroom. He's going to be like the bridegroom who will rejoice over Israel. And Jesus Christ is saying, I am that bridegroom. Why are they with me? They should not fast. But notice he says, Something else, if we go back to Matthew, go back to Matthew 9. Our next phrase we want to note is this, Matthew 9. And it says, <clears throat> well, here's the reason they don't fast. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. So the next, taken away. What is it referring to? His death and resurrection. It's Isaiah 53 and 8. It says, by oppression and, a, and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this, his generation, he considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus Christ was taken away. And what he's saying to them is, I'm with them now. No, fasting is not proper because they are, I'm right there in their midst. But a time will come when I am killed and in resurrection and I will be taken away. That will be a time to fast and to pray as we fast and pray for my coming again. As you would fast and pray for the commissioning of missionaries as we saw in the book of Acts. 
as you would fast and pray for this kingdom to to return and for us to live in view of that return. Taken away. It's what John would say, the hour would come for Christ to be glorified. And then just the statement itself, which is plain. It says, then they were fast. Now, we've already seen in the Acts account that they were fasting in the Acts account. So the question would be then, if one was to say that then fasting is not for today, then what is the marker? What what marker are we looking for that says it's obvious that it was a part of the New Testament church in in the book of Acts? We don't see it as we do in the epistles but do we do see it in history? So one could say, well, maybe the historical references were simply the lingerings of what was a tradition that came from the early church. But there's no indication in Scripture that says that there is some cessation of fasting. It's just, I believe, a discipline that's been lost. It's under the umbrella of a Christian liberty, and one can exercise it or not. And some of that's going to be based on the culture that is set in the church, in the environment, um, by the leaders. It's lost. I think it's a neglected discipline. And from the men that I've read and many others that I could refer to, many of the cases in history, there was great benefit to it for people as we focus our attention, our mind on other things as we say no to self, to something that is acceptable. Food is acceptable. It's given by the Lord. It's to be enjoyed. But to say, I'll set that aside as I focus on this. And not just food, as we, I think I would agree as well, not just food and drink, but I'm going to put aside that. It might be something as simple as I normally do watch a double header on Saturdays. But you know what? I'm going to focus my attention somewhere else. And I normally would do that and say, but instead of doing that, I'm going to focus somewhere else. I normally am pretty active in tweeting, or tweeting that is, and, and Facebooking and Instagramming and Snapchatting and, and whatever else is out there. But let me take a break for a while, and I'm going to focus here. We can fast in many different ways. But it comes back to saying, I'm giving up something to gain something. That's the bottom line. And remember, um, for anything to be self-denial or to be a, a sacrifice, it has to be something that you might normally enjoy. Like I remember before I told you in the times I would say in a former church, well, maybe you can just join me for a meal. And for that person that never eats breakfast, that's no sacrifice. But Because what happens... It, just even in the body, once you begin to make that transition from not eating and your body's telling you you're hungry, have something, and your stomach is telling you you're hungry, there's a sense in which you begin to think about the things that you're praying about. But it can also be a test as well. And I think sometimes some of your greatest tests may come during that time of fasting and prayer. So the bridegroom has been taken away. He says, then you will fast. And when he returns again, I would conclude that there's no need for it because he's there. And especially for the disciples, because when one thinks about fasting and praying, they had had ready access to him to ask him anything, to request of anything, to say anything. Now, for them, they didn't quite understand the fullness, really, of who he was. But the bridegroom is here. Now he's gone, but one day he will return, amen? And the day of atonement, the people would fast for that day because it was a time of repentance and mourning and and asking that God would atone for their sins. But now that that great atonement has been made through Jesus Christ once and for all, we don't fast in that way anymore. We fast in the context that our salvation is complete. And now we fast in a way that says, God, I'm communing with you, and I'm in earnest over this issue. Hear my prayer. Father, thank you for just these words 
I pray that it's been helpful, um, that all of us would consider this discipline and how we can involve it in our lives. Amen. All right, great. I made it. All right, so we're going to take some questions from you. I see some hands already. All right, before the mics are even hot. All right, let's go. Regarding uh, Matthew six seventeen, can you go a little deeper into when you fast, anoint your head, and wash your face? Because I understand, like, washing your face is having that countenance of joy, right? Like, so people aren't... Sure. I don't know. But also the, like... Anoint, that word anoint, like I know that the shepherd anoints the sheep with an ointment of protection. Is that like cleansing us of our motives? No, I, I take it, very, it's literal. Yeah, there's no, I don't see any spiritual language behind it. He's saying that literally because they would go around drooping and literally because they might be sort of disheveled in their appearance. And there is some historical evidence that they would at times because the scripture tells us that they would disfigure their faces. Um, not Mark's, not um, Matthew's account, but they would disfigure their faces. And some would say that it, at times they might even put some ashes or something in their face to make a statement that I am fasting. So Christ, the words are very literal. He said, wash up, clean up, be bright, um, show joy. And I think that's in part what J.C. Ryle was saying that we should let people know that our, our faith is one of happiness and joy, not gloominess. Yeah. Now, there may be a point in time when there are times when I've fasted for long periods, people have looked at me and said, boy, what's going on with you? Just because I've lost a lot of weight, and, and that's happened. And my wife even, even said to me at times, that one time you went kind of long, I don't know if you should do that again. You kind of look kind of gaunt, you know. <laughs> but that wasn't my intention. I brushed my teeth, washed my face every day, and um, and they thought probably I was on some new Hollywood diet plan. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> it's it's literal. It's wash up, be bright, go on about your life. Yes. Uh, yeah, I actually was uh, thinking about that. That other cultural example of um, fasting, which is for health. And that is a trend now, intermittent fasting. Yeah. So, you know, would our, our motives be pure if we were um, going about to fast? And we also have in the back of our mind that maybe this, you know, could have some health benefits too. And on the other hand, if we were fasting for health benefits, would our prayers, if we decided to pray, have a little more weight? <laughs> that okay. Time? All right. Let's just get real practical here. So I'll back up. What's interesting about now, the, sort of the rage is intermittent fasting, right? So, you know, eat at 5 p.m. and don't eat again until 11 a.m. the next day. And you hear it everywhere and there are benefits to it. I won't get into all of it right now. And um, even recently in the conversation, Joanna was telling me because she is, she is sort of doctor mom in the home and all these sort of things. And that there's benefits I have received for years without knowing about the benefits of it necessarily. Um, and, and I can see it in my body. Actually, after the time that I fasted, skin is better. Um, my circulation, especially in this bad knee, is a little bit better. But I just never paid attention to it. There are times I just look and say, wow, okay, there's, there's benefit. Because you're just going through a process of cleansing the body out naturally. It's sort of like even with eating kosher food. There's a benefit that's derived from it. Um, but God just prescribed a diet for the people of God, but they benefited from that diet as well. So when it comes to fasting, if one is fasting and their motives are pure and it's spiritual, spiritual, yes, there is a byproduct, if you're doing it properly, of some benefit. Um, and it's not wrong that you derive it because your body naturally is. You can't stop it from deriving the benefit. Now, you flipped it over and said, what if I am just doing intermittent fasting and I throw in a prayer? Um, well, we go back to our motives in it. I, I think the intention is that I'm starting with saying, I'm giving this up for this religious reason, this spiritual reason. Uh, and I'm in earnest for this reason. And I'll, whatever benefits come as a result of it physically, I'll receive it. But if I have it or not, that's fine. And there was a point in time, even me, with longer periods, the benefit turned into something that was a deficit. 
because I couldn't do certain things. I was too weak. And I was telling someone. So, yeah, I think that answers it. Okay, two hands here. Great. Thank you. Um, you ended or closed with the concept of there could be some good testing that you would experience, some severe testing. Sure. Could you ex- elaborate what that might look like, maybe what you might have experienced or others you've known have experienced testing in okay, that time? Okay, great. That's a great question because what does Scripture tell us, um, Paul to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Be persecuted. We can, ex- we can expect that whenever we're striving for the Lord because we're engaged in spiritual warfare, then that spiritual warfare the intention is always going to be that the enemy thwart it as best he can. But the scripture does tell us we're to do what? If we draw near to God, right. But it also tells us to do what? What happens when the devil will flee from us? Right. So, but there is a sense in which I believe is going to be engagement whenever we're seeking the Lord to try to stop us from doing it, perhaps. Say, for instance, with prayer, just let's, Real practical here. When you're praying, do you always find that your mind is just perfectly clear and undistracted? Exactly. I don't even need to say anymore, right? Now, all of a sudden, you're ready to pray on all these other thoughts that were never there before. All of a sudden, you're bombarded with it. What is that? Part of it's just the flesh. I think a part of it is the spiritual warfare. Because uh, warfare, one of the keys to warfare, it's success or not, is always communication. Always communication. That's why you see in every major war, uh, particularly in more modern warfare, um, the first thing that one wants to do is first, you want to create air superiority, and you want to cut off communication for your enemy, which means roads, bridges, cell towers, radio towers. And so with if you were the devil, um, and we know... Paul says we're not unaware of the schemes of the devil. We know that he's a schemer. Then what is he going to do? Cut off as much or cause to be inconsistent communication. And communication with whom? With God. So that's our hand. Okay, then we'll come. All right, we'll come back. When I was like just out of high school, way back. And I had a young man that was uh, working with me at a flower shop, and he came from Catholic background, but the, the, what he um, shared was his father had taught him, and his father passed away while he was still a young man. His father had taught him to deny himself and practice self-control, and one of the ways that he did that was when he was, which we, back in those days, we walked everywhere. Yeah. We didn't have cars. We didn't have cars? Yeah, like my dad had a car, he went to work, and the rest of us walked. Oh, okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so this young man walked, I guess, from school oh, you mean to like, his house. Like it is today, like the kids at 16 have a car, right? Right. Yeah. So when he was walking, whatever he was going, and every, when he would walk by the bakery, he would deny himself to look in the window at all the beautiful, delicious things. And he practiced that in different places that he went about in his everyday thing, remembering his father telling him, and I, I've remembered that over the years, because who practices telling their children to deny themselves to look at something or to have self-control on specific things and on consistent ways, let alone our own selves? Sure. So is there a question in there? Yeah, so you can comment on, I mean, that's a simple thing. And it's, well, okay, it's, in the sense you of how You were talking we about yeah, fasting in the, in the from food, of, but this is sure. denying oneself. Yeah, in the sense of it may be something that if we talk, took a young person, if you will, and all of you are young, so let me, uh, what I'm saying by that, um, it's something in social media. Deny yourself in that, that you're not going to be involved in it. Perhaps that's it. And just that simple illustration of saying, I know I'm attracted to it. Let me turn the other way. Those are exercises that I think we all need to, to practice, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, if you're asking, is that something that's beneficial? Most definitely it is. And sometimes it's not just beneficial, it's absolutely necessary because when we think about the world in which we live, uh, there are always things that could distract us and not just distract us, but tempt us where we must look away. We have to look away. I mean, how, it, it used to be a time you could go to the mall and you could kind of glance in all the shops in the mall. 
But now you go to certain malls, it's like, my goodness, okay, let me, and I mean me. I'm saying, I'm in the mall, and it's like, okay, that shop's over there. Let me just have my conversation with the person this way. Some women say, well, that's just because you're weak in flesh. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. (laughs) It doesn't take any, it doesn't take any, there's no Greek word or nothing. There's no, there's no grammar to decipher, you know. There's no, in the original text, it says, you don't change your voice to make the point. That's right. I'm, there's no way I'm going to constantly put that in my head. I'm not going to put that in my head because the mind is a fascinating thing. It will grab on it. It will take a snapshot. It will log it away and it will pull it up in other times. Is this not true? Of course it's true. So there's no way I'm looking at that shop and that shop and that shop. And some of you guys know what sort of shops I'm talking about. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, they should just take those shops, those shops that they have, and they should have a woman's mall. Or the women's section. <laughs> they should have a women's section. Okay, you know, guys, you guys don't really need to be in there anyway. And don't pretend, guys. Don't pretend. Well, I appreciate it for its artistic value. Come to counseling right now. Let's not pretend. So what, one of the things that struck me when you were talking about denying and, and sure. those I- items, I was thinking of the, the uh, practice of Lent for, you know, and, and there's Catholics and, and Christians that will maybe practice that. But then I was thinking about, you know, saying, like, just doing it for just sacrificing what Georgia was just saying, just sacrificing to sacrifice sure. without prayer or meditation. Sure. You would probably, I would say, would you put that in the same idea? Like just by fasting alone without prayer is for, has a benefit, but just giving up something just to give it up without seeking the Lord in that time would be a difference as well, right? Yeah, in the sense it could restate it, yes, fasting should always be joined with prayer, unless you are going to do it just for health benefits, and there's no point of this conversation. You just need to go to your doctor or uh, health physician and talk with them about that. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. There are benefits to it, but not for this conversation. Uh, and can one just deny something just for the sense of saying, I will um, overcome it? Absolutely. But even saying, I'm going to deny it, don't just do it out of brute strength. Do it out of also prayer. I'm saying no to this for a reason. Not just to say no, because then it just becomes religious. It becomes Paul, Philippians 3, you know, Pharisee of Pharisees, that, you know, I'm denying the flesh. I'm saying no to the flesh. And that's what it becomes then. And and that's pharisaical. That's religious. There's no benefit of just self-denial for self-denial's sake. It's Colossians. It's Colossians as well, um, where, you know, they propose if one were to abstain from certain foods and um, that somehow there's a benefit from that. And that was a wisdom that they said was a wisdom. And what did Paul say? Uh, it's a worldly wisdom that has, interesting enough, he says, that has no what power against the indulgences of the flesh. You can abstain all you want. There are people that have enough what? Willpower to abstain. The whole issue, think about Martin Luther and his own struggles, abstain, 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 abstain. But in his heart was what? All sorts of wickedness. And that's why Paul said to the church at Colossae, you can go through all this you want, but it has no benefit when it comes to fighting the desires of the flesh. It's none, what it says. Because internally, you're still going to want it and desire it and crave for it. Um, Yeah. I think I saw a hand over here. Um, Due to the example of Christ fasting, uh, what role, if any, does withdrawing from society into the wilderness play in fasting? That's a great question. really is. So did everyone hear that? Christ's example, the one time he went away, got away from society. Um, <clears throat> there are obviously people in religious history that thought, I have to go to a monastery. I have to get away from all of society, all of the trappings of the world, and be away. But uh, even in our Bible study last night in Pasadena, we were talking about one application of this thought about we need to be lights in the world. We remove ourselves from the light. 
if that's our constant mindset. But I believe there's benefit to get away from the hustle and bustle of where one might be. Now, that might literally be your inner room and close the door in your home, some peace and quiet away from everything else. Um, and a, someone may practice that. Personally, there have been times when I've said, hey, I'll see you guys in a couple of days, and I've gone up to Wrightwood, and I'll call them. And as a pastor, they'll let me have a cabin um, with no charge, and I'll go up there, and I'll read, and I'll pray, and I'll go for, you know, just walk through the hillsides and the mountains thinking about things just to get away from all that's around me. So on some regular basis, I think there's, there's a benefit from it. Um, the noise that may be around you. Um, but to say that I can only be heard or I can only hear from there is wrong. But I der- I've derived great benefit from it doing it at times, to be away with the Lord. In, in one sense, uh, isn't it beautiful when you can look up into the heaven and see the stars, right? But one thing about it is when you're in the city, um, you can't appreciate them as much, right? Why? Because there's light pollution all around you. I mean, they're there. You know they're there. And every once in a while, you, it, there's a breakthrough. But, um, boy, if you go out into the middle of nowhere, and like last night, it was barely a crescent moon. Wonderful. I'll never forget. And I, even in our place in Canyon Country, it's a little better there than it used to be when we were next to LAX. I mean, you could see nothing except for the planes going over. That was about it. Um, but I will never forget it. Hill Rose, Colorado. Um, was there visiting a Grace Advanced Church. We're out at night, and we just were, it was, it, I mean, literally pitch dark. And I hadn't seen the Milky Way like that in, in a decade or two, it seemed. And it was so dark that literally, i never forget, the door was, say it was right here. We walked out, and we're looking into the heavens, and I said, oh, my, that's right. And that's why it's called, you know, we say spilled milk. And you sort of saw that. And literally, I turned around to go back inside. I couldn't see the door. And I was groping for the door. And I found the knob. So what did that cause me? Just to get away from some of the things that may distract. Is there a benefit to get away sometimes? Sure. And it could mean just a walk. It could be a walk in the park. Or it could be, like I said, it's that place in your house where you just get away and it's quiet there, whatever it may be. But great question. And I think that's it. So the Lord be with you.